since I was pretty young, I've had a, a fascination with the internal combustion engine. I, uh, I got my first little dirt bike when I was four, and I remember I just felt free, you know, and maybe when I was eight or nine, going to my grandparents' lake cottage and my dad teaching me how to start up the little five horsepower Johnson on the, the rowboat, and I felt like king of the world out on this little tiny lake, <laughs> but I had power. <laughs> I got a little older, I think I was about 13, I got a, another dirt bike, third or fourth one, it was a, a two-stroke 250, and I only weighed about 110 pounds, but man, that thing would just fly, <laughs> and ever since then, I mean, it just, I was, I loved it, I had so much fun, I just, feeling that power at the turn of your wrist and just flying, you know, a few years ago, my dad bought this sports car, and my sister called me about a year ago and said, you know, dad's writing some stuff down, he wants to know if when he passes away if you would like that car and I said no I said I will be in jail or dead within six months if I had a car that went that fast because I like power I like I like that feeling but I like I said the the internal combustion engine it, it isn't just going fast I've seen videos of these new Teslas and other cars that are are incredibly fast, but until they stop selling gasoline or forcibly take it away, I will own a car with an internal combustion engine. I like hearing it. I like the kind of power it makes. I like all of that. You know, look under the hood and actually kind of understand what's going on. In this sermon series, we've looked at the power of the resurrection. And today I want to look at what I view as the engine of that power? What is supplying the power that we find in the resurrection? We looked at sin and how it separates us from God and the hold it has on our life. We looked at sacrifice and this method that God has given for the covering of sins and most importantly the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice to pay for sin. And we looked at the power that gives us in our lives over sin, that it doesn't have to rule over us anymore. And today I want to look at grace. That as we celebrate Jesus coming out of that tomb, that all of this is powered by God's grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again we thank you for this joyous morning. We thank you for your love for us and that you are a God of grace, that you've given us Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again, and that we can experience your grace through faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray. When we think about that, grace and faith, the first thing that always comes to my mind is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a foundational verse, verses to our experience as believers that for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works that no one may boast for by grace you have been saved 
This is putting it all on God and really in who he is that we have salvation. It is by grace you have been saved and through faith. And so as we look at this today, I want to look at at those two things that are the beginning of our life as believers and they should be what we continue on as believers. And it's how what powers our Christian life. And so grace, you know, the, the simplest definition of it is it is unmerited favor. Oftentimes grace and mercy are, are used almost interchangeably, but they're not. But our God is both merciful and gracious. He is merciful in that, remember in the garden when God told Adam that if he would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would surely die. And, and God is merciful in that he withholds that immediate punishment for sin that we are all due. But he is gracious in that he has offered us eternal life that we could never deserve. This is an unmerited favor. It is a gift that we are undeserving of. And we see there in Genesis, as we've looked at, that this is God's plan was brought forth there in the garden. That after Adam and Eve sinned, that he told the serpent that, that the woman's seed would be bruised by him on the heel, but that he would crush his head. And that God was saying that I will have, I'm going to make a way, I'm going to make this right and all of this is brought forth through human history and coming to Jesus and him being the fulfillment of that plan. We say, what is the reason for this plan of God? Why, why has he done this through history? Why has he done this for us? I think Ephesians 1 most clearly answers that. As Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians, Jump to verse 6, where he says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is something we've looked at before, but as you go through Ephesians 1, Paul is going to point out God's role in our salvation, Jesus' role and the Spirit's role, and through all of it, it is to the praise of the glory of the Father. And his grace there is pointed to, to his glory. We should be praising him for his grace and that there is nothing that I have ever done that made me worthy of eternal life. There's nothing I ever could do that would make me worthy of being forgiven by God. And yet, because I have had faith in Jesus Christ, I am going to live eternally with God, and I will forever show His grace. <laughs> oh, Craig Rutherford is there? <laughs> God must be a gracious God. <laughs> and that is for all of us that have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life and will be with God in heaven. We will forever be bringing praise to him for ourselves and praising him for who he is because his grace is going to be shown so clearly by us being there because none of us deserve it. That this gift that was never deserved could only be given by a God to whom grace 
is shown perfectly. To whom grace is part of who he is. That while he is holy and just and cannot tolerate sin, he loves us and he is a God of grace. And for that we praise him. Turn with me to John 1. John 1, 14, John describes Jesus as being full of grace and truth. He's literally the essence of that. And in a certain 16, it says, For his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Again, this, this grace upon grace in the appearance of Jesus. And here John is comparing it to Moses giving the law. And it's interesting that the, the grace and truth is describing who God is. That Jesus as the word, as the revelation of God, and that God is truth. He's the creator of all things and he is truth. And then he's describing this, this grace that is coming forth from him. And he is not saying that the law was bad and Jesus is good. What John is saying there is that we know through all things that, that God is good and that God gave the law, and so it had to be good. And we see that it is good because God was revealing to the nation of Israel who he is. And what it is that pleases him. And he was through the law pointing towards the need for Jesus because he was giving the requirement of what it takes to please him. A requirement that is impossible for us to do. But that Jesus is the final and greatest revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that greatest revelation we see grace upon grace. And what a beautiful sentiment that is. And we think of this gift you could never deserve, and it's like it's being heaped upon us from God. This isn't just like someone giving you a small thing that you think, oh, well, that was nice of them. I didn't deserve it. Oh, this, is, this is grace upon grace. That as sinners with a right understanding of who we are in the sight of a holy God, that to be offered this gift is unimaginable. Especially as people, because in our sense of right and wrong and justice, the thought of heaping something like this on someone who never deserved it isn't within our realm of comprehension. And yet God, who is perfect, has heaped this upon us has given this to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. You think of Jesus being God's greatest revelation of Himself and the love that was shown through that and this grace being poured out through that. We think, I mean, that's not all God is. I mean, we just went through the book of Revelation and we saw that, that God is a just and holy God and judgment will come. But again, I want to go back to that idea of God's plan and what it will look like for eternity and that yes that there will be those who do not accept his gift and judgment will come upon the world but we will show his grace forever and that is a a beautiful thing that that God will rightfully receive praise from us for forever and then to the idea of 
faith. Because it is through grace, or by grace, this is this gift that God has heaped on us, through faith. What does it mean to have faith? One of the clearest scriptures on that is Hebrews 11.1, 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. I love that word assurance there and, and confidence, that assurance is, if I am assured that something is true, I have confidence in that fact, that I know that it is going to happen. That to believe, to have faith, to trust, is to be convinced in your mind that something is true that you were assured of that fact. I'm going to go back to the Gospel of John in a minute, but it's interesting. John, who repeatedly shows statements from Jesus where Jesus is asking people to believe, in 1 John 5.1, he says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes... Whoever is convinced of that truth. When he says there that Jesus is the Christ, that the Christ is the Messiah, that he is the one that God has put forth to give eternal life. That it is believing that, that we'll get to in a little bit here about faith, but that I can't do it, God had to provide a way. That way is Jesus. Now this is the promise again, that I just said that Jesus repeatedly makes in the book of John. Look first at John 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. He has come to Bethany. He is met by Lazarus' sister Martha. She laments that he was not there to save her brother. Jesus tells her, starting in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Are you convinced that this is true? That I am who I say I am? That the promise that I am offering of eternal life is a promise that I can keep. He's much clearer there to Martha than he is at the beginning to the woman at the well. If you turn back to John 4, in verse 10, as Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and has asked her for a drink and she's confused by that, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is to, who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I've heard this described as, as John's almost his gospel in a nutshell, and that it is understanding who it is, is that is offering the gift and what the gift is. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and he is offering us eternal life. That as sinners, we deserve to be separated from God. 
that the wages of sin is death, and therefore, because of my sin, my willing rebellion against God, again, the, the Hebrew word carries the connotation not only of missing the mark, but of willfully missing the mark. That when I sin, I am living in open rebellion to God. That I choose not to follow His ways, but I worship myself and I follow my ways. And because of that, I am, I am never going to be deserving of being with Him But to know who Jesus is as God himself, as the Son of God, and the gift that he is offering me of eternal life, that to be convinced of that being true is saving faith. It is assurance that Jesus can keep his promise because of who he is and what he has done for me. And on the morning that he rose again, he proved forever that he could keep that promise. And that he is our hope of eternal life because he himself has risen again. And so what he promised to Martha, that even if he dies, he will live, that we can know that that is true. In our own lives, we live like that, knowing that there is something far greater we are living for. Knowing that when we lose someone that we love, that we will see them again. Those aren't empty words. This isn't just trying to console someone and say, oh, they're in a better place. We know our loved ones who have believed in Jesus are in a better place. And we will see them again because Jesus has promised us eternal life and we have believed in him for it. We're still in John 4. Turn back one chapter to John 3. and In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he gives an explanation of of that kind of faith and an example from the Old Testament. In John 3, read 14 to 18. It says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That example he gives there at the beginning of the Son of Man must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness He is likening him going to the cross to when the Israelites were being bitten by snakes and they were dying. And God told Moses to take a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and put it up in the middle of the camp. And that if the people would look at that, then they wouldn't die. And what did it take to look at that snake? It took believing God's promise. That to us, in our human knowledge, that that may seem like the most ridiculous thing to do. And that in our stubbornness and our anger at God for sending the snakes in the first place, we just sit there and look at the ground and die. Or you could say that, that God is loving. That God didn't create the snakes to be venomous and to kill 
but that it is who we are as sinners that has brought death into this world. And God is offering me a way out. And the Israelites that believed that promise, all they had to do was look up. That it was that belief that saved their physical life. And in that way, Jesus is saying, I am going to the cross. And those who are willing to believe in God's promise, as he lays out there in the following verses, will have eternal life. It is that conviction of it being true. It's that assurance that God is promising me this, and I believe it. I think a a key aspect of this, of, of this kind of assurance and seeing what it looks like, in Matthew 18, uh, the children are brought to Jesus in, or in Matthew 18 too, he called a child to himself and he set him before them. He said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Understanding the role of humility in that, in that if I am looking to myself, that if I want to be seen as worthy in the eyes of God, and so I am earning it, then I'm never going to get there. I think what Jesus is pointing to is becoming like a child. It's that beautiful picture of, of a, a child's... Children are, are very well aware of what they are and aren't capable of. And I don't, I don't know about your children, but my children don't seem to ever hesitate to ask for help, especially when they're, they're small. You know, Daddy, can you get this for me? Can you get that? Can you lift this? that we have that humility in us, that we need Jesus. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think that is seen in our salvation. That it is God asking us to be reliant on him. That when Adam and Eve sinned, that they wanted to be as Satan promised to have their eyes open and to be like God. And that is in the sin nature of all of us to want to be in control and to be in charge. And God is saying that we have to put that aside and rely on him. That our conviction, that our assurance is rested in that fact. That I can't do it. I need Jesus. That's why every cult and religion outside of Christianity, puts the onus on oneself. It is amazing how many faiths have taken bits and pieces of God's truth, but they always leave out grace. There is always what you have to do to earn God's love. That grace, that God's unmerited gift of His love, of His Son, is left out. Because that is the lie of Satan. That you can be in charge. You can be the one who does it. But God wants us to come before him humbly and to believe in his son.
Now, a pastor friend of mine posted something yesterday that if you're celebrating Easter today, this weekend, and your focus isn't on Jesus, then you're missing the whole point. This isn't just a long weekend that is to celebrate the coming of spring with chocolate bunnies and eggs filled with goodies. We are celebrating a risen Savior, God's only Son. God Himself taking our place of punishment on the cross and paying for our sins with His blood and then rising again, giving us the promise of life. And all of that that we are celebrating as believers is powered by grace. That's the engine that is driving it. We thank goodness it is by grace and through faith. Because I could never earn it. We could never be good enough to deserve it or to keep it. And if you've never come to that moment of belief, there's no more important question in the world than what Jesus asked Martha. Again, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? If you have never in the past, I mean, are you ready to examine that promise? That promise of Jesus of eternal life through what he did, not through what you do. Do you know the gift and who it is that offers? And are you ready to ask him and receive living water? We all need that gift. We can look at ourselves and think, I am I'm better than my neighbor. <laughs> I'm generally a moral person. I think the, the separation that was caused between us and God at the moment Adam and Eve sinned is felt in all of us. That we may see ourselves as generally good people, but in comparison with a holy and perfect God, we fall far, far short. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we feel that within us. That we know that there is something off. There is something wrong. And we all need that gift. We're willing to humble ourselves and accept the payment that Jesus made for our sins on the cross. And to embrace the hope that is found in the resurrection. That if you're not there yet and you see the joy on people's faces this morning, as we say, He is risen. This is what it's all about. Again, there in John 11, before the cross, even before Jesus raised her brother from the dead, when Jesus asked Martha that question, her response to him in verse 27 is, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. That through Jesus' teachings and his other miracles and her relationship with him, she knew it was true. She was assured in her heart, even in the face of her brother's death, that this man she was speaking to could keep the promise that he was offering her. That question and the answer to it is more important than anything else about us. Think about that. In our world today, everything is so focused on identity and what makes us who we are. 
John says in John 1.12 when he's beginning to give the description of Jesus that to as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's something to identify as. That's something to take hope in, to find community in, to find joy in. This is what Jesus is offering. For those of us who have believed, we see that that grace is the engine that is driving this. What does that mean in our, our everyday lives? Again, I said, it's a shame we don't say he is risen more often because this is the joy that we have and we have it because of God's grace. And we should be living our lives because of that. Turn with me to Hebrews 4. Starting in verse 14. The author there says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That grace that powers the gift of eternal life continues to power my Christian life. That as I continue to walk in this world and seek to serve God, that I am continually in need of His grace. And He continually gives it. That He is merciful in His dealings with me, that I am not immediately judged. And that as I confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive them. That I can, because of what Jesus did, for the rest of my time on this earth, I can continually come to the throne of grace. What a beautiful picture that is. Again, Jesus has given me the power to become a child of God. Think of God Almighty on His throne, and I can come before Him because of grace. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Twice now we've looked at at Romans 5 in this sermon series and what Paul has said about death and sin and and the grace that has come through Jesus. At the end of that chapter again, verse 21 of Romans 5, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is this beautiful picture of grace reigning as death had. Again, death had been undefeated. But now grace in our lives, because of what Jesus Christ did, as possessors of eternal life, that we live out that grace. Jump ahead to the next chapter in verse 14 of chapter 6. As Paul is, is giving this explanation to these believers of who we are in Christ and in this grace, he says in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And again, as here in that chapter, he compares law and grace, and he points out that the law was not a bad thing. It was given by God, but 
Because we are under grace, we have this new power over sin. And that is, I believe, that grace upon grace continually being heaped upon us as believers. That the initial gift we could never have deserved, but to get to live it out, what a beautiful and joyous thing that is. Lastly, I want to look at Titus 2. Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. I see in this that Paul is encouraging Titus here to, because of the grace that we received in Jesus Christ, because of the grace that continues in our life, that this should through gratitude, spur us on to live as God desires us to live. And at the end there, that it's with these things that we are to exhort one another, to encourage one another, just as this morning we are encouraging one another with the good news that Jesus is alive. It is the grace that I have been given that I should be encouraging you with, and the grace that you have been given that you're encouraging me with. And we have this unity in that. The joy that we have found in the grace that we have been given is the basis of this new life. That sin isn't, doesn't have dominion over us anymore. That we have grace. That we have eternal life. Let that be the spark of our joy. Powered by grace. That gives us a new and different life. One that we can live pleasing to God. Happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Let's thank God for his grace to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that as always that you have revealed yourself to us in so many ways, that in this beautiful place that we live, that we can look at the creation all around us and we can see your handiwork. And we can see who you are through what you have made in our own bodies, in the world around us, that we can know more about who you are because you have given us your word, that we can understand your love and your grace because of you sending your son, Jesus Christ, and the perfect life that he lived, a life that was filled with compassion for those around him, a life that was lived in service to the world, a life that culminated in him giving his life for us, and a life that is eternal because he rose from the dead. And on that Sunday morning, they found the tomb empty. And then he appeared to his disciples, and he appeared to many others, and they, they knew it was true. And God, we rejoice in that truth, and we rejoice in your grace that drove all of it and that we have the opportunity to worship you forever. Help us to live that grace out so that 
those who we come into contact with, those whom we love, who have not found that grace yet, who have not believed in your Son, Jesus Christ, for eternal life, can't help but wonder where we find our joy, where we find our peace. We thank you for all of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.